Hey, and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. This week, we are starting our Easter series titled The Plot. One of the lessons we learn from the Easter story is that you can do everything right and still end up on a cross. Though Jesus never wronged anyone, he faced opposition from all those he came to save. Yet, Jesus responded with remarkable love, patience, and forgiveness. What lessons can we learn from this example? Listen as Pastor Tim kicks off the plot. We hope that this talk encourages you and inspires you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. As Brandy alluded to, one of the most amazing things about the Easter story, at least from my perspective, is the fact that that no one had ever loved as well as Jesus. No one had ever been perfect like Jesus was. He did everything right. He never sinned. And yet, he was opposed all over the place. In fact, in that last week, what we call the Passion Week, just about every group to whom he was exposed opposed him in some way, wronged him in some way. I think of the religious leaders, for example. They followed Jesus, and actually they opposed him for three years solid. Throughout his ministry, they were giving him a hard time. They eventually accused him falsely of blasphemy and then had him arrested and crucified. I think of one of his closest friends, Judas, who walked with Jesus for three years, observing Jesus' life, listening to Jesus' teaching, watching him do good and heal people, and yet he would sell them for 30 pieces of silver. I, I just find that fascinating and, and sad. And how, how could such a thing happen? And I think of the disciples. They all fled on the night Jesus was arrested, despite the fact that that very night they all pledged their loyalty to him, every single one of them. I won't leave you. And they all did. They all fled that night. I think of the people that Jesus fed and taught and healed. Many of them in that crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We want Barabbas instead. I think of the governmental authorities who permitted and facilitated the crucifixion, even though by their own omission, he did nothing wrong. They all said, we find no fault in him. I think of the soldiers who carried out the not just the execution, but the beating, the scourging of Jesus. Of course, they had to do that part of it, but what, what's more bothersome is the fact that they mocked him in the process, cloaked him with a, a robe, a purple robe, put a crown of thorns on his head, and mockingly bowed before him. I think of the two criminals hanging on the cross next to him, one on each side. And these guys are guys that are facing eternity. I mean, they're, they're facing death in the face. And yet the scripture indicates both of them mocked him, both of them. Now, one eventually relented. But when I look at this story and I see how the people in Jesus' world, all of them failed so much, I just think of this phrase, God help us all. I mean, that's, that's what comes to my mind. What does what it come to with humanity here? What they did to Jesus, it was pathetic. It was, in in one sense, unforgivable, except that's what the cross was about. But when I read this, at the same time, I have to wonder in my own mind where I would be in the story. Would I have been a disciple? Would I have been one of the religious leaders, a governmental leader? Would I be in the crowd? What would I be doing? 
But I, you know, where do I fit in the story? Because oftentimes I read stories like this, and I, I, to be honest, I get angry at the people I'm reading about, and then at a certain point it occurs to me, wait a minute, would I have done the same? Is that, is that me I'm reading about here? What makes Jesus' treatment all the more wretched, I don't know how else to put it, is that he was and is our creator. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth who chose to enter this world taking on humanity. He had limitless power at his disposal, and yet he let people do this to him. He let it happen. No one took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down, which also ultimately brings us to all to the point that, in a sense, we're all guilty because Jesus was coming to die for you and for me. I realize it's my sin that put Jesus on the cross. Now, today we're beginning this new Easter series that's titled The Plot, and we're looking at the story just through some of the characters involved that were opposed to Jesus and trying to learn a few lessons along the way. Because there are lots of lessons, and each week will be a different lesson. For example, as I think of how Jesus responded to the opposition he faced, it was quite remarkable how he stuck with his disciples when they didn't stick with him, how he was like a a sheep that's silent before shearers as he stood before Pilate. So amazed was Pilate that Pilate wanted to let the guy go. He was just so amazed. He hadn't seen a response like that. And, And Jesus says he was entering Jerusalem for the last time before he'd be arrested. He we find him weeping, but he was not weeping for himself. He was weeping for the people, the very people that would be shouting, crucify him. And, and I realized, wow, this is just amazing. And, and to me, the most amazing scene is when he's hanging on the cross, looking down at those who are gawking at him and mocking him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. If anyone can look at the story and see Jesus' response and not conclude there was something different about him. And of course there was. Now today we're going to look at the story through the lens or the example of the religious leaders. What can we learn from this story? And by the way, you don't, the, the lesson about the religious leaders is not, this is not the lesson, do what they did. They, they missed it. It's unbelievable that they missed it. I'd like us to read Matthew chapter 26 verses 1 through 5. Jesus had been teaching his disciples a lot of different things because he knew he was going to be leaving them shortly. He was aware of that. He was going to be returning to his Father in heaven. So he taught them a lot of things, and he kind of ended his conversation with them on the subject of the end times and how Jesus one day is going to rule forever and ever. And then when he was done with all this teaching, he explicitly said something to them that would have shocked them if they had realized he was serious or understood it. I I think they just, I just don't think they could digest what he said. But Jesus explicitly said this, I'm going to be arrested and crucified. That's what he explicitly said. And so let's pick up that story beginning in Matthew 26, 1. We read, when Jesus had finished saying all this, teaching all these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days, And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It emphasizes his humanity, but it also emphasizes that he was the Messiah of Daniel from the Old Testament, the Messiah who was coming. 
And so he announces to them that the Passover is coming in a couple days, and then I'm going to be arrested and crucified. Verse 2 begins this way, you know that the Passover takes place after two days. But my version of the Bible includes a little asterisk there that indicates that that phrase, you know, is not a statement, but a command. This should be better translated, know this. So he just talked about all these things, and then he's looking right at them, and he says, know this, in a couple days is the Passover, I am then going to be arrested, and I'm going to be crucified. Now they, again, they had trouble digesting that, like you can't be talking literally, right? Although they didn't ask him on this occasion. We continue reading, though, in verse 3, where the scene changes. We read, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. Notice the words that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses to describe what was going on in this little room here, this little gathering. He uses words like conspired. It was a conspiracy. He uses the word treacherous, which means to betray or to deceitfully plan something, and it's kill. Now, these guys had murder in their hearts. What's amazing to me about it is they were the religious leaders, these are the religious leaders. And you wonder, how on earth did they get this thing so wrong? I mean, many of them, if they were Pharisees, knew the Bible well. I'll talk about that in a minute. But they really knew the Bible well. They had seen Jesus perform all the miracles. He had fulfilled so many Old Testament descriptions that relate to God the Father. He himself had fleshed those out so that they should have looked and said, I think this is, I think this is hey. But they missed it. And our question today is, well, how? How, did, how on earth did the religious leaders miss it? And then, unfortunately, so did the people. And those who were following the religious leaders, and suddenly I look at a situation and say, you know, I don't think we want to be the kind of people who are led astray. We don't want to be the kind of people who are deceived. I certainly don't. And so I really want to explore the question here today, how, how do we know? How could we discern about even religious leaders? Because, you know, they seem to be like holy people, but how do we know? Because Jesus called these individuals, he called them blind guides leading the blind. They were ones who could not see. Now, did the, see, the people see that? I don't, I don't think so. But they missed out, both the leaders and the people. They missed out on the most significant historic event that had ever taken place. Since the beginning of the world, the Creator came and lived among us for three plus years, teaching, healing, doing all these wonderful things, and they were about to nail Him to a cross. How did they miss out? Now, I think it's important, and maybe I've talked a little bit about these kinds of things recently, but I think it's important that we be people of discernment and that we're able to sort things out, and I'm, I admit that it's getting harder these days. Because I personally am having trouble discerning what the truth is when I hear something. I hear something on the news or I see something online and, and I read it and my first thought is, how do I know that's true? I don't know if that's true or not. Especially if it disagrees with what I've already chosen to believe about things. 
And how do we discern the truth? And it's getting harder and harder to do it. But I think when we talk about these religious leaders, and today, specifically, I want us to understand about spiritual leaders that you would look to. How do we discern if they're right? There are some clues from these religious leaders that we can learn from. Now, I want to mention three things that I think we should use to evaluate spiritual leaders, and then I want to talk about them more in depth. The first one is that I think spiritual leaders should have a personal relationship with God. It, that just seems like that's their job. A spiritual leader, what's the job of a spiritual leader, you know? But they need to have a relationship with God themselves. I wouldn't want to follow any spiritual leader that I didn't have the confidence they knew God. We can't know, of course, 100% sure, but, but that's something that should be true. Number two, they should live in a way that is consistent with the faith they profess. In other words, you should be able to look at their lifestyle and what comes out of their mouth and determine what kind of people they are. And then third... They need to be ones who are able to point people to God because I think that's, again, the main responsibility of religious leaders should be to help people find God and help them develop their relationship with God. It should be somebody that you can go to and ask, how, how, can, I, how can I get closer to God? How can I meet Him? Do they know the answer to the question? So let's talk about this first one here. Spiritual leaders should have a personal relationship with God. In John chapter 8, Jesus was having a debate with the religious leaders, and he said something really bold. I mean, it's re I mean can you imagine? I, I, I just can hardly imagine him saying this as he's looking right at him. And this is what he said. You're trying to kill me. He knew. He said, you're trying to kill me. And then he added, you're just following the example of your father. You know, you're just like your dad. Now, their response was, God is our father. And Jesus answered, beginning in John 8, 42, he said, we read, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here for I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Now, do you see the argument he's making? You say you know God, you say that you're a child of God, that he is your father. If you don't recognize me as coming from the father, you don't know God at all. He is not your father. If you don't accept me, if you don't receive me, the fact that you reject me shows you don't know God at all. Now, those are, these are very, very strong words. And then Jesus turned up the heat even a little bit more in verse 44. He said, you are of your father the devil. Can you imagine, by the way, looking at a religious leader and saying that? <laughs> You're like of the devil. Your dad's the devil, you know? You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. In other words, you're just like him. And has not stood in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he, the devil, speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of liars. Do you realize everything the devil says is a lie because it springs from a character that's all he's able to do? That's his nature, to lie. Verse 45, yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? 
The one who's from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen because you're not from God. That is it. It's a profound statement that would help us discern whether someone's from God or not. He says, the one who's from God listens to God's words. Those who know God, who have a relationship with him through faith in Christ, just recognize God's word as being God's word. And I think it's because the spirit of God confirms it within them or whatever, but they recognize it for what it is. And these religious leaders did not listen to God's word. Of course, they knew it well, but they didn't listen to it. They certainly didn't apply it to their lives. And they rejected Jesus because they didn't recognize that God spoke about Jesus and all the prophecies. Often, I'm asked by people, and it is often, uh, people say, uh, I'm going to be moving. I have to move out of Morgantown. I'd like to find another uh, church in a city I'm moving to. Do you know any good churches there? I get that question a lot. You know, I'm going to such and such city. Do you know any, any churches there? Most of the time, my answer is no, I don't know any. But let me suggest two tests to determine if it's a what I'd consider to be a, a good church, one that you should go to. That's how I define a good church. I'm not talking about music or programs. That's another thing entirely. But how would you know that this is a church that you'd want to submit yourself to what they're teaching and their example and this and that? How would you know? The two questions that I would ask, number one, is their view of the Bible. Do they believe the Bible is the Word of God? And do they use the Bible and teach the Bible as if it were the Word of God? Not just suggestions, not just interesting reading material, the authoritative, inerrant Word of God. Now, I recognize that sometimes even as individuals, we may struggle, some of us may struggle with, is this really inerrant? You know, is this really the Word of God? But I'm talking here about the leaders, those who are leading the church in various ways. If that church itself does not believe that the Bible is the Word of God, I would say they don't know God. Now, I'm not the one to judge that God is, but I'm basing it on what Jesus said in the verses I just read. He said, the one who is from God listens to God's words. And so it suggests the person's not f- from God. They don't, they, if, if they don't understand this, if they don't realize that this is true, that the word of God is, is true and applicable to their lives. But the second test that I would use, the second question I'd ask is, how, how do you think you need to get right, or what do you need to do to get right with God? You know, what does a person need to do to have their sin forgiven? How does someone become a Christian? How do you become a, a child of God? That's, I would ask that question, maybe in different ways, but that's the question I'd ask. How do you get right with God? How do you deal with sin? And if the answer is not immediately, you need to put your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ then I'd say they, they don't know God because that's, again, what Jesus said. He said, if you don't receive me, you haven't received the Father. The, the fact that you say no to me means you don't know him. And so the same test I would use here to say, do you know, do you know God? Well, it's through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by doing good. It's not a variety of things, different answers. Everyone goes to heaven, things like that. I'd say, no, no, no. It's about Jesus, and Jesus said that in John 14, 6, where we read, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what we believe. And so you come through Jesus. That answers the question. 
But these religious leaders did not know God. They did not have a relationship with God. And it's because they did not receive his son, Jesus. That's how we know that that was the case. Jesus said, if you loved God, you'd love me. You know, if you knew God, you'd know me. And so spiritual leaders should have a personal relationship with God. And I think there's some ways to discern that. Number two, second point, spiritual leaders should live in a way that's consistent with the faith that they profess. I'm not suggesting here that they'll be perfect, and I would say don't put anybody on a pedestal. We all fail in many, many ways. You will end up being disappointed if you put people on pedestals. But at the same time, Jesus made it real clear that a a tree is known by its fruit, that you can tell something about a, a person by the things they do and the things they say, what are their actions, what are their words, what comes out of their mouth. A tree is known by its fruit. And so Jesus gave that to his disciples specifically so they could discern, is this someone that I should listen to or not? How do I know if this is a, a good tree or a bad tree? Well, look at the fruit of their lives. Look at the things that define what that person is like. Again, they won't be perfect. Part of the reason that there was a problem with these religious leaders in Jesus' day is because the entire priestly system was corrupted at the time of Christ. I first learned about this on the last trip I took to Israel. Ray Vanderlyn was talking about this, how how it had been so corrupted that, that positions, people were getting positions like as priests and all by paying for them, by bribing people. Britannica says this about high priests. This is uh, the, the group that used to make the Britannica encyclopedias. They write about high priests. The office, this office of high priest, first conferred on Aaron by his brother Moses, was normally hereditary and for life. In other words, you had to be a Levite, and you kept the position for life. In the second century before Christ, however, bribery led to several reappointments and the last of the high priests were appointed by government officials or chosen by lot. Another scholar by the name of Leopold Saburin, in his book Priesthood, a comparative study writes, during the Roman period, there were 28 high priests. Herod appointed seven of them himself. Herod was wicked. He appointed seven of them. Yes, men, you know? So that there were always several high priests around, and they still retained their titles and their influence. But Herod and his successors controlled the office. The bottom line is that a number of these should never have been in in spiritual leadership at all. But this is where I think the people in Jesus' day should have been able to see beyond that. They should have recognized these people, and yet they didn't. Now, what's interesting about all of this is that these, these leaders here, and they fit into different categories, you know, there were the, the priests, there, were, there was the high priest and several of them now. There was supposed to only be one, but there were many, in the t- couple at least in the time of Christ. And then there were the, uh, the Pharisees and there were the Sadducees. These were all these different religious groups and, and most of them were considered elders in Israel, part of the collective group of governance called the Sanhedrin. And, and, but they were, they were religious leaders and they knew the Bible well. The Pharisees in particular, there's evidence that they were required to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. I could see memorizing Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus. It's getting a little bit too tough. They knew the Bible well. What was the indictment, though, against them? What was wrong with them? Well, knowing your Bible is not what makes someone a spiritual leader. It's living it. 
And what was the thing that Jesus kept saying about them? What was their biggest sin? Religious leaders, hypocrites. There's almost a whole chapter devoted to that. Hypocrite, you say this and then you do this. Hypocrite, you do this, but then you do this. Hypocrite, you talk about this, but you do this. They, they weren't living it out. Now, that didn't mean that the people in Jesus' day shouldn't have done some listening and they could have learned even from these ones. Jesus said something interesting in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. We read, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. He said, the scribes and Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. In other words, they're in that seat of authority that Moses had in the Old Testament. Scribes and Pharisees are sitting in that seat right now. He says, therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. In other words, listen to the word of God, hear it, apply it, do it, but by all means, don't follow their example. Now, I believe that we can look at people today and, and we can learn a lot. You look at what people, teachers on TV say, the kinds of things they focus on. I think any minister on TV that focuses on money and getting personal wealth so that you'll be a rich person throughout your life, Jesus would never have focused on things like that. I'm, I'm just sorry, he would not. That would not have been a focus. So here's how you can be successful in the financial realm. There's nothing wrong with being successful financially, but look at a person's teaching. Look at their lifestyle. Does it match up? The things that, that they're doing with their life. There's so many ministers lately that, you know, they're just being exposed for the horrible things going on behind the scenes. This is, it's really important that we be able to understand the lifestyle. And most of the time, there are signs. Leaders out there that are they're abusive, they're controlling. They're in the same power trip as the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day, that kind of thing. What we're to look for, according to the Apostle Paul, is character. And again, someone's not going to be perfect, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, these were the qualities Paul said should be true religious leaders or pastoral leaders in church. They should be first, he said, above reproach, meaning free of credible accusation. Second, someone who's devoted to his wife. Third, self-controlled. Then sensible. Then respectable. Hospitable. It means a lover of strangers, someone that has an open heart toward others. An able teacher. Not addicted to wine. Not a bully, but gentle. You don't want to bully. There are a lot of those out there. Not quarrelsome. Not greedy. One who manages his household well. Not a new convert and one who has a good reputation with or among outsiders. So these are some of the qualities. A similar list is found in Titus chapter 1. There are a lot of areas in life where a person's character do not matter, but when we're talking about the spiritual realm and spiritual leadership, it matters a great deal. So spiritual leaders should have a personal relationship with God. Second, they should live in a way that's consistent with this faith that they're putting out, and you look for signs about that. And then finally, they should be able to point people to God. Now, earlier I referred to Matthew 15, 17 about the blind leading the blind. Let me set the context for that, though. Jesus was having a debate with the religious leaders, or he shared some things with them. 
And when he was done, his disciples came over to Jesus and they said, do you realize that when you said that, you offended the religious leaders? They were bothered by what you said. In other words, you hurt your, their feelings, Jesus. And in Matthew 15, 14, this was his response, leave them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Do you see the implication here? Leave them alone. They're, they're, they're beyond hope. I mean, not that no one's hopeless, but you understand. Leave them alone. They're just, they're blind. The people that are, just don't worry about that. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was so mad at them, these religious leaders? What was the big deal? I mean, he was having these discussions with them a lot. What was the thing that got him so upset? Do you know what it was? That they were getting in the way. They were getting in the way of, of people finding God. Jesus said about them, not only are you not entering the kingdom of heaven, but you're blocking the way for everybody else. And that's, that's what made Jesus mad about them. Jesus had come to save us from our sin and open the way for all of us to have eternal life. And then you got the, the ones who were supposed to be pointing people to God were the very ones that were hindering and keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. But this is something we should be doing and we should care about the spiritual welfare of people. Now, as I get to the application here, I want to, of course, I'm, I'm talking here about not being led astray. You know, how do we kind of discern between religious leaders or whatever, a variety of different churches or whatever. And I'm suggesting, one, that they know God. Number two, that they live in a way that's, you know, consistent with their faith. And three, that you'd want someone who's able to help you get to know God. You know, you'd hope that would be the true. But let me turn this around just a little bit and, and apply it to our own lives because the, in, in the final analysis, you can't blame other leaders or other people for your spiritual condition. You know, that's not something you, you can't blame them. And as I think of the, the people of the day, they had similar problems, and the same question should have been asked of them. Do you know God? And that's a question we should ask ourselves. Have, have we come to a point where we've entered into a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ by faith and received him as our Savior? That's the starting point, a relationship with God. Forget about the religious leaders. Do you know God? Have you trusted him with your eternal destiny? Second, are you living in a way that's consistent with the faith you profess? This is important, I think, for a couple reasons. Number one is that people are watching our example as Christians. They're looking for any way to badmouth Christians. They're watching our lives. And so I think it matters from that perspective. But it also matters in another way. I think it matters in terms of the confidence we have as we live out our faith. Because when our conscience is constantly accusing us uh, it's hard to live a confident faith. That's why the apostle said, Paul said, I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and people. I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience because he wanted to move confidently forward in his faith so that he may not know about this person or we may not know about this person or that person or this religious leader or that, but we can know something about our own lives. And then third, I think it's all of our responsibility to help point people to God. I think that the greatest joys I've had in my life, of all the things, I've faced wonderful, joyful things. But I believe that there are two occasions that are at the top of the list, and those were two occasions I led friends to Jesus Christ. The tears came down their eyes. 
and I realized I gained an eternal friend. And I think we have a wonderful privilege, wonderful opportunity. And by the way, Easter provides that as well, as we look at the Easter services, that you help bring other people, help people find God as well. The last point I want to make is this, that really all of what I've talked about here today is um, the, the security we can have, the assurance we can have. I think it's all based on what your relationship with Jesus is like. And this is why we talk about this all the time. Develop your relationship with Christ. Get to know him. Walk in step with him. Fall in love with the one who loved you, who called you, who saved you. It's really about a relationship. You know, the Pharisees, what they were about were rules because they didn't have the relationship. We have a relationship with Christ. And it's that relationship that makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you used even these rebellious religious leaders who didn't even know you, you yet used them to accomplish the greatest good to save the world through your son Jesus. We are grateful that you're sovereign over all these events. We want to thank you that your son was not a victim, that he laid down his life willingly. No one took his life from him. And we acknowledge that today and we're grateful. And help us, the Lord, to be people of discernment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.